Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Andrea Traverson, Managing Partner at Amadeus Capital Partners. Since 1997, the firm has raised over 1 billion for investment and used it to back more than 180 companies. Andrea's experience as a VC is something to envy, having lived and invested through the boom and bust of three bubbles. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to Four Degrees. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. Andrea, welcome to, to the European VC. It's great to have you in the show. How are you today? To move I'm very well, thank you guys. Nice to be here. We always like to start, Andrea, with kind of more overall overview of what got you into venture? How did you end up in this industry? There's so many different stories there. What is yours? Mine is a um, very serendipitous story, which is a little bit the story of my life. I didn't know what venture capital was when I joined the industry. I was uh, finishing doing an MBA at Cambridge University, coming from a family business in a different sector. We had built a family business in the hospitality sector in Central America. And I did an MBA, which my father called an academic holiday, (laughs) which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way. And at the end of it, a friend of mine was uh, interviewing for private equity and venture capital, including uh, with Amadeus. He decided that he preferred to do private equity and move to the north of England, where he was from. And he said, listen, I love these people at Amadeus. They're lovely guys. Why don't you go and take my place in the process? And I said, well, yeah, I'm happy to help you to let them down. But what is venture capital? Over a coffee in the cafeteria of the MBA Judge Institute in Cambridge, he gave me a dummy course on venture capital. And uh, I started to go to my interviews. And indeed, I met all the original partners at Amadeo, which are wonderful people. And uh, they were looking with someone with entrepreneurial experience at the time. They gave me the chance to work with them over the summer. And then they made me an offer at the end of the summer. To specify, because you said at time, the time is 98, if I'm Correct. not mistaken. The year, the year was 98. So this was really much the very early days of venture capital uh, in Europe. I remember at the time when I had to look up what other venture capital firms were in Europe, I could only find uh, three or four. 3i, Index, Kenneth Capital, and that was about it. And uh, it certainly has developed since (laughs) I think we're meeting three new emerging managers every day these days. So uh, yes, a lot has happened since. I'm actually curious if maybe you would jump a bit into how you look at getting into venture, contrasting back then to today and also you now being at the top of the food chain inside Amadeus. What is your thinking around growth development of new employees? I believe that the route into venture from another career or from uh, straight out of university is still very much uh, in a way driven by serendipity. In other words, we see people and we hire people with very different backgrounds. And we actually like that and look for that. 
So when someone uh, and many young people ask me, interns, you know, how do I get into venture? I always basically say the same thing, which is, you know, two things. One is prepared mind and two, exposure. By prepared mind, I mean you need to be prepared and have uh, pretty well-supported views about what you believe the industry is about, where you want to invest, the type of views to the questions that you guys ask in your podcast. And at the same time, you have to have very good exposure, whether it is networking or internships like we run every summer and many firms do, or work for portfolio companies in various VCs, or work for advisory firms that have exposure to this market. And I think the combination of a prepared mind and exposure gives you that leverage on the serendipitous event of hitting on an open uh, position because open positions are not often advertised by the VC community. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, just double-clicking on that, the non-advertising of job opportunities in VC, do you think that it's a good practice or a malpractice? And what are your views as a firm there? I don't think it's good or bad. You know, when we talk to our investor, particularly when you are fundraising, you always say, well, we have a full team, we have the best team, we have the team to execute the strategy. So if you then have an opening on your website, you sort of undermine yourself. (laughs) In reality, what I find is that VCs are always and never hiring. So it always makes sense to approach a VC firm at any point in time. The other thing I advise young people is basically say, target firms that are either in their last year of their investment period or the first year of their investment period for the new fund, because that's usually when they have to scale up resources. So they're more likely to be going out for a fund or just having raised a new fund, still having the portfolio of the previous funds to look after and therefore needing more executives. And that's probably from a timing point of view, the best time to approach a VC firm. Good point there. So now just a bit more on your route into venture. I'd love to hear your first investment that was last minute.com, yeah. then the dot-com bubble burst <laughs> pretty yeah. soon after. I'm curious just to hear a bit that journey and those first years. I'm sure that it must have been quite a hectic experience. Yeah, it was a very interesting time because I got in too late and too early, so to speak. Uh, okay. Too late to ride the first wave and too early to ride the second wave. So I got stuck a little bit in the middle. My first investment was lastminute.com. I, to be honest, and, you know, luck is a big theme in the VC industry, but I got lucky that we got this proposal through. And to me, it made perfect sense because I came from the hospitality industry and Brent and Martha were building a business with a huge product market fit, where basically you have an industry which is capacity driven that cannot lower prices at the last minute because they would cannibalize the commercial relationship they have with their distribution channel. So you want to be able to drop your prices at the last minute whilst uh, respecting those relationships. And they build this business where at the time online was a new channel. So suppliers of capacity could justify the fact that they had a special price online, which was lower than offline. And it was last minute. So the combination of two things was a brilliant idea and was already being brilliantly executed by two fantastic founders, Rent and Martha. So when it came to me, I said, wow, I've been looking for this in my family business for the past five years. Where do I sign up? And so I got to know the founders. They got to know me, and uh, they realized that I understood the industry, so they let us in in a round that was already on rails, so to speak. 
after we invested, the company executed really well. And within a short period of time, it went public just before the internet crash. After that, there was a long period where at Amadeus, we had to look after our portfolio companies that were struggling to fundraise. So we had to support the portfolio. So I ended up supporting a lot of my partners with some great companies, actually, that emerged from that era, whether it's Transmode that went public or Cambridge Silicon Radio that went public as well or Optus that went public as well. So these were all fantastic companies, but where we spent three or four years basically firefighting to help them survive with follow-on round, internal round, commercially, team building during some very tough periods. And then uh, come 2003, where the market had recovered again, the mobile wave started. I started early within that wave. And that's a little bit of a theme at Amadeus. We tend to invest ahead of a wave. And so we started to invest in mobile infrastructure back in 2003. And that's when I started investing again. Super interesting. We will dive much, much more into bubble dynamics and what you're seeing in the market today and so on. Let's wait with that just until we've got some more context on the starter of Amadeus and what you're doing. So you joined back in 98. That is one year after founding, I believe. So while you're not a co-founder, you practically are. (laughs) So I think that we should really take the time here to dive into saying, okay, what has happened in these 20 years? A lot must have happened. How have you developed? So we started the first 10 years, we raised the sequential funds, which we call balance funds, doing uh, early and late within the same fund. And we started from a 50 million pounds, and then we moved to a much bigger fund, which was a 250 million, 265 million pound fund. And then the financial crisis hit. And we realized quite quickly at that point that basically different LPs were targeting different return profiles, and they basically wanted different types of risk exposure in terms of capital loss risk, upside, and holding period. At the same time, on the transaction side of our business, transaction processes started to become much more stage dependent. So in early stage, you had to have definitely a prepared mind to act quickly on deals because business angels were starting to move in very actively pursuing deals. And so basically both at the capital end as well as the transaction end, we basically foresaw that the market was starting to specialize and segment. So we basically decided to develop at the time a growth strategy, which invests at early growth and pretty late stage, which is now in its fourth fund vintage. And we've been executing for more than uh, 12 years. Whilst in parallel, we continue with our early stage fund strategy, which is now in its fifth vintage. And what we witnessed over the past 10 years is that many funds follow the same strategy. And I hear that more will be doing that soon. Am I right to say that there's also an emerging markets component to your investing strategy? Could you shed some light on that? Yes, correct. So within our growth strategy, we also have another strategy which covers emerging markets exclusively. So once again, within the theme of being ahead of the wave, what we started to observe through actually through our portfolio companies is that there was a tremendous amount of organic growth in technology adoption in emerging markets. India and China were the obvious markets, but we started to witness that in Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, and Latin America. So in partnership with a very large LP, we raised a fund to invest in technology-enabled services because 
at the time, deep tech in emerging market was still very local and very early, so we couldn't cover the market, but we wanted to start to establish our presence in those markets. And so we decided to raise a fund that invested in at growth stage and in technology-enabled companies, which gave us exposure to technology developed locally as well. And we have pretty much deployed that fund, and we're looking to raise the next generation of the fund as we speak. And we are continuing with that strategy, which is now led by my two partners, Pat in San Francisco and Beatriz in Sao Paulo. I actually think there's an interesting detail in there, you know, especially considering most of our listeners are emerging managers, which is your different strategies. So the early stage, the growth, the emerging markets ones, they have very different geographic footprints by design. And so could you just shed the light on those geographic footprints and also explain what was the logic behind designing it that way versus just saying it's the same geographic footprint for at least the early stage and and the growth one? There are two things about Amadeus that many people I don't think realize. Maybe they don't realize. Maybe we don't shout too much about it. We were born from day one being a two offices uh, firm or co-location office, Cambridge and London. One founder was based in London and another founder was based in Cambridge. And the firm was always been about split half and half at the very early days. So first of all, we were all already used from day one, if you wish, working remotely. We get together once or twice a week and then we work remotely. So for us, geography wasn't ever much of an issue. We always believed that our early stage strategy would be mostly local and it still is. But as we expanded, we were always comfortable with operationalizing geographical dispersion, if you wish. My partner, Pat, spent 10 years with us in London and then moved back to San Francisco and continues investment activities out there, investing in places like Europe, Israel, US, Brazil. So for us, that was always a natural thing to do. Secondly, most of our company, I would say 95% of our companies are global from day one because deep tech is global from day one. So we share the same mentalities as our entrepreneurs that they develop the technology maybe in one place, but immediately they start scaling their business internationally and remotely. So for us, geography was never a big dimension or a big constraint on our strategy in terms of developing new products and new funds. I'm curious because I remember there being an enlightening <laughs> inside the firm around the need to split into different funds because it was difficult from an operational perspective to operate out of the same fund when you had one deal in the growth sector where you did a DD that would cost 500K (laughs) and then you spent the same amount of time discussing an early stage deal that in total was investing 500K. Yeah, right. Particularly because we didn't have a model. We didn't have an analog. We were probably one of the first firm to execute that. My partner, Anne, who led this activity, did a brilliant job at this. We started with the design, we iterated how we operated, and she built an operational model that is absolutely, in my mind, brilliant. And now we are executing, and it's easier to execute it as you continue to build on that platform. We are supported by an internal fantastic back office team, which is quite unique in the industry. A lot of the industry tend to outsource many of their back office function, whether it is finance or legal. We have tended to keep it everything in-house, which has given us unique capabilities to execute this strategy. So it was really the combination of her vision to operationalize this supported by our back office that enabled us to create this platform on which we can 
have teams always working together but transacting in specialist area, whether it is LATAM or Growth Europe or early stage UK. Could you dive into that operational model? I know that it's not your brainchild, but <laughs> could you shed a bit of light there? Yes. So the way we work together as a team, both at the investment side and at the back office side, is that, first of all, we will all work together as a team. So it's one team, 37 people, about half and half investment team, back office or infrastructure. And the whole investment team works together on transactions. So on a Monday, when uh, a deal team presents a deal, we create on the spot, a deal team across funds, let's say, that work on the due diligence. And this is very much driven by insights on the market, sector knowledge, company strategy, network within that sector. And it is inevitably across funds. So at the moment, to give you an example, I'm working on an early stage deal in uh, semiconductors with my partner, Amelia, and my partner, Herman, who are both on the early stage side. And yet, Anna, one of our associates in the biotech space, joined me in my most recent deal, which was more of a growth deal. So we very much work across names. And then the deal team that is specific to a fund transacts from a transaction point of view, but the back office gets involved quite early in that process. So finance and legals come in very early, and they're part of our Monday meetings, and they support us from day one on structuring deals particularly those outside the UK where you have a different structure depending on the local jurisdiction. And our back office has developed the knowledge to do those very easily. So they give us a humongous amount of support in those transactions. And then when it comes to reporting, once again, the back office and the front office are very much integrated. And so we leverage ourselves in a very elegant way, I think, operationally. And that's how we work, basically. We also have one thing that is really powerful for me, which is cross-carry across all the funds. So all the partners have carry, and all the executive, and all the back office, actually, they have carry in each of the funds, not the funds where they are specifically transacting. Is that then an equal split, or is it still weighted so that you do get more from the fund that you are primarily connected to? And also... Do also state the reasons why you think it's important and also your thinking around incentivizing more junior personnel. We try to make sure that the structure creates the right drivers for all those points you mentioned, to reward the people that are spending more time with those assets in that fund, whilst at the same time having exposure and helping in the other funds. We give carry to early employees or early executives. And we are one of the few firms that I know that they keep a very large reserve, which is then given to, think of it like almost like an option pool, reserves in the carry pool to give to individuals in that fund and even across funds that are growing in the firm. So in a way, we're trying to fulfill all of those requirements and all of make sure that people are motivated to really all work together as a team across all our funds and all our assets. In designing something like that, would you highlight potential challenges or things to be wary of in designing that? And and I ask this because obviously, again, 
our audience has a lot of people who are going through those thoughts and setting up their first funds. And any learning you might have there is an extreme value for them, right? I mean, there are always challenges and the challenges are very specific to a firm and a firm culture. We had challenges at the beginning, and but now we have implemented this strategy for close to 15 years. So I think we've ironed out most of the issues. I think I would say that the two or three things that I thought Anne did, my partner Anne, who took responsibility for the implementation of this strategy and the operationalization of it, that I think were very good, was this equal cross-fund carry split. We all see it, Amadeus, day in, day out, in action, and it's very powerful. You know, when you get a success, you feel part of that success, whether you were involved in the company or not. And I can see that all the partners talk about we when associating with a company, whether they are theirs or not. And that's the ultimate sign that we are all in this as a firm. Point number two is the, the reserves for performance. So basically leaving a significant part of the carry pool unallocated on day one, and we tend to leave it unallocated until quite late in the life of the fund, to basically give a chance for those young executives to show progression and reward them as they grow within the firm and in their career. And I think those were two very important tenets, I should say, of the strategy. The rest was much more operational around how do we make sure that we have the right back office for the number of transactions we do, the different strategies. And that is very much more sector dependent, fund size dependent, and all of those things. With this carry model, have you had at any time the loss of a key employee that then has carry? And how have you thought about incentivizing that employee on their way out? When you've been around for 20 plus years, there's always people who leave and people who join. We had individuals and partners leaving mostly to actually pursue executive roles and setting up their own firms in different sectors because of different passions. Some of them uh, set up their own firms. So it does happen. And just like in any VC firm, we have a vesting period. And so the unvested part, just like an option pool, comes back to the pool to reward those that will take over those responsibilities, whether they're new executive or existing executives. And the carried interest is a recognition of the work done. And it keeps this individual within our universe, so to speak, and they remain friends of the firms. They often bring us deals. They often apples with due diligence. And we constantly stay in touch with them. I just thought that since you had a quite developed mind on this, I was curious if, if you were also playing with, you know, saying, okay, so if you want to leave over the next year or two, then these are the priorities that we should shift your efforts on, right? Because it might be less beneficial to have that person doing new investments. It might be better to shift responsibilities and focuses and... For example, emphasize finding someone to take over and then saying that is what you'll get carried based on. And no, we don't have to have those trade-offs. I don't think actually, to be honest with you, naturally things work that way. What tends to work, the, the way things tend to happen is that they evolve at the right point in time. So come the next generation fund, a partner say, hey, actually, I'm ready to go and uh, do something else because it's of interest to me. So I'm not going to be involved in the next fund. So then the discussion becomes, I say, okay, understood. So you will not be part of the fundraising team for that fund. Let's find a good way to migrate your board seats and your uh, direct responsibilities to another partner within the firm or to a new partner that is coming in 
And that it gets worked out during the period of transition out in a pretty natural way, to be honest. So there was never had, as far as I can remember, a discussion around rewards for that behavior. That behavior comes naturally, basically. Changing topic and before moving into the last section, I'm actually just curious to ask you something I always like to ask about sector, which is deep tech. There's so many definitions of deep tech out there, so many different worldviews of what it is and what it isn't. I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> what do you guys consider deep tech and what excites you in deep tech? Yeah, it's a good question. We're getting that question more and more often at the moment from our not existing LPs, but from new potential LPs who are very interested yeah. in deep tech. We develop our own version of it, which is a very much an Amadeus version of it, I should say. I'm sure that you're aware of the many definitions. Some people say, well, deep tech is about the convergence of some fundamental sciences and innovation. The way we like to describe it to our investors is very much almost at a company level. It's almost like exemplifying it. So to us, the way that we define deep tech is a company where the technology, number one, is the key operating differentiator in the company, and I'll come back to that. Two, it is the technology is proprietary and owned by the company. And three, the technology as a, not only direct, but it's it has a core impact on the operational leverage of the company at scale. So what do we mean by that? So in technology companies, whether they are tech-enabled, tech companies, or deep tech, there are aspects that are key differentiators of the companies. In some companies, like in marketplaces, it's all about network and scale. In some cases, it's product. But in deep tech, is usually the fundamental IP, that really that core technology that it is the key differentiator. There aren't many companies out there that you can point at that have the same thing. And usually that technology has been developed in-house. In most cases, it has been protected by patent, but not always. And it is owned by that company. And the first two already have a direct operational impact, yeah. usually on gross margins, okay, because of the uniqueness and hard replicability of that technology. But the key one is the last one, which is the operational leverage. If it really is a deep tech company, this company will have an operating leverage both at the sales and marketing and R&D level of the OPEX, which will at scale give them a much higher EBITDA margin, profit margin. And that is a true deep tech company. Yeah. And that's how we define deep tech. It's interesting, and I am biased in this because my path into venture started in the biotech space, right? And many deep tech investors, I do feel, would completely agree with you but then say, I don't do biotech, right? <laughs> I'm using it just as an example because it fits perfectly into your description. So if we focus less on technology depth and focus more on sectors, what is your guys' uh, view over Amados? So, you know, we invest in uh, many, many sectors and we look for companies with that background. We don't do drug discovery. Now, as you know, the world of biotech has changed dramatically with the advent of genetics. And we were at the forefront of that because we invested all the way back in 2001 in a company called Solexa, which became Illumina, which basically invented DNA sequencing as we know it today and opened up this old synthetic biospace. So we cover a big part of the biotech front, but we don't do drug discovery. The things that uh, one particular area that I find exciting at the moment is what I call perceptual knowledge enhancing deep tech. Perceptual knowledge basically is the knowledge that is of the perceptive features of the world around us. So the knowledge that is grounded 
on our perceptual experience or what we observe and what we perceive. Now, these days, as you know, the interface between the physical, by the way, including the biological, and the digital realm is blurring. And we can leverage that blurring interface to enhance rather than confuse or substitute our perceptual knowledge. So some of the application area within these teams are technology like conversational AI. Am I speaking to a person or am I speaking to a bot? Does it matter for certain application? Another area where I'm spending and we're spending time as a firm is low power vision and image processing at the edge, which leads to video integrity. In other words, is what I'm seeing real, enhanced, or fake? SLAM is another, simultaneous location and mapping is another key area where we're spending a lot of time. Can I place myself accurately in a remote place and context? The other key area where I'm spending some time at the moment is, for example, in healthcare sensors. The one company I've been looking for many years and still looking for is a company that develops a non-invasive, accurate glucose monitoring sensor. And I constantly look for that company, and I'm hoping one day to find one. Another key driver is what we call democratizing genetic data. What would happen if I was able to match properly my phenotype, my current medical condition, and my genotype at every interaction with my diagnostics or care provider? And finally, how can I secure all of this data, i.e. cybersecurity? So these are some of the questions that spur me and Amadeus to search for companies that basically have viable and exciting answers for those questions. So basically, we just had two, three minutes of a recording good for uh, technical founders to listen to if they're thinking of the next startup and then can reach out to you directly. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I actually think, Andrea, that there's something in there that's interesting, which is you say that you actively search for these companies and you search in these spaces. And that means that you are a strongly thesis-driven investor, I suppose. Correct. And I'd love to hear a bit how that pans out operationally for you. Basically, it's all part of the prepared mind thesis. In other words, if your investment thesis led, well, first of all, you have to, particularly at the early stage, because the pace of transaction is too fast. You almost have to know the company that you want to invest in before you see it. Because if you see it and you have to discover it, by the time you go through that process, the deal is done and probably they're on to the next round. So you've got to be mind ready. I think once you've been doing it for so many years, that universe has expanded so much, that coverage universe has expanded so much that you cover a big front of the deep tech space. And that's where we are today. So at the beginning of the year, one of my partners brought a deal from a very well-known entrepreneur here in Cambridge who was involved in a very well-known startup. And we're not done the deal yet, so this is still in stealth mode. And another partner, Manjari, and I took a pitch together. And we were ready for that company. And we said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So this is a next generation AI totally different framework for AI, much more powerful than we have today. And because we started investing in AI and we were probably the most active investor in AI 10 years ago, we have been spending the last 10 years looking and building AI companies. So by the time this one came, we were prepared for it and we immediately jumped on it. Hopefully we're going to close that deal soon and hopefully be announced soon. So yes, we are thesis led, but now the theses are becoming so many that we are quite prepared to meet our deal flow, to find the company we invest in. So 
it's almost more than going out and finding the right companies. Be prepared if the one that matches your view turns up. And that's where we are today. You are in Cambridge. You've mentioned that a couple of times. You've also spent quite some time there uh, during your sabbatical, <laughs> as your father nicely put it. I'm curious to understand the ecosystem around Cambridge University and the rest of that world in the UK. And since you are very focused on the UK, I think that you're probably one of the best ones to answer to me. How do you actually work closely with these top tier universities that you have? It's something that once again, we've been doing for a long time at Amadeus. As a matter of fact, we have been involved in uh, developing a similar cluster, not in deep tech, but in technology enabled company, for example, in Cape Town in South Africa, through our relationship with our emerging market, original LP. So we understand having lived through at least two, maybe more cluster developments when it comes to technology. And Cambridge today is one of the most advanced ones. And there are others that we are invested in and we will invest more in. Most recently, we have done a few investments from Valencia in the Universidad de Valencia in Spain, which is developing a very interesting cluster. But back to your question, Cambridge is now very sophisticated. We probably have third generation entrepreneurs, people who have done it multiple times. We're now at the stage where you have multiple entrepreneurs that become business angel and non-executive directors in portfolio company of ours that we have backed in the past. And so it has become a very sophisticated, very liquid, very active and supportive ecosystem. And it's almost like a case study in competition. We are constantly co-investing, building business and competing with deals with the same people in a very open, objective, supportive way. And it's growing. It's growing uh, dramatically. But we are observing that in many other clusters in the UK, whether it is uh, Oxford or university in Scotland. We see this model being replicated at fast pace across university clusters in the UK and in Europe as well. I always love discussing co-optation, <laughs> but we shouldn't dive into it now. But I think it's so central to everything we're doing in Europe. And it's something that I don't think most of Europe has cracked the code on exactly. How do you foster those very strong relationships at the same time as you also know that you're going to be competing? Sometimes? Correct. But over to you, David, go ahead. As we kind of hinted to, and you talked about, you know, Amadeus has been around for some time. You've seen the market. <laughs> As Andreas also said, we're seeing a lot of emerging managers nowadays, but many few of them have been uh, around long enough to see the ups and downs of the markets. And, you know, the last couple of years have been interesting currently. And just for context to our listeners, this is being recorded mid-March. Currently, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future will hold. And so, Andrea, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts about market dynamics. How do you guys think of it? And also, what do you see uh, the future having in store for us in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. At least in deep tech, which is the place where we operate most of our time, we are long on cash and short on conviction, particularly until very later stage. So there is a lot of capital around, but a lot less conviction. And basically, conviction comes from a combination of confidence in a great entrepreneur and one's own read of a technology and a market. There is a lot less of that in the market. So what do we do before investing and what do we advise our entrepreneur within that context? So particularly at an early growth stage, when we invest, we really only focus around assessing product market fit, which is also what tends to happen 
in the following rounds after we do the first early round. Unfortunately, when it comes to product market fit, most generalist investors, they tend to focus on financial metrics. And when you focus on financial metrics in deep tech, you're either too early or too late, almost by definition, because these companies really portray these revenue hockey sticks where either you've missed the boat or the boat is so far away from where you invest that you're going to do two internal rounds before getting there. So we have developed over the past 20 years a proprietary playbook, which basically covers not financial metrics, but a much wider, much, much wider universe of signals that indicate product market fit in deep tech, whether it's product, organization, internal system, go to market. And this playbook has been built over 20 years of building 200 plus deep tech companies or close to 200 deep tech companies, I think we are now, and probably tracking maybe five times that number. And that gives us a very, very large and proprietary data set on which to train our models to use an AI metaphor. So that's one of the things we do. The other things we do is that uh, we agree with entrepreneurs very upfront, very clear and crisp milestones, which we believe need to be measurable. And we believe jointly with the entrepreneur that are able to attract third party funding so that the company really has a clear, true north about what to develop to make sure that they de-risk the funding in this volatile and uncertain market environment. And finally, because of the same reason, what we advise them is to start raising when they have 12 months of cash still in the bank, constantly engage with a set of new investors to build that conviction, which is scarce, before asking capital. And finally, raise enough capital when they do for 24 rather than the traditional 18 months. So those are the things we're doing within this market context to help our entrepreneurs and when we invest. I'm actually super interested in diving a bit into that point around helping the entrepreneurs to sign their round because for the deep tech entrepreneurs, that is one of the most difficult things because they oftentimes come from a more academic background or research-oriented background. And at the same time, most of the literature that you can access around how venture works is not very well developed for deep tech founders. So could you talk us a bit through how you help entrepreneurs on that front? Yes, you're absolutely right. There aren't a lot of analogs or other case studies around deep tech as there are around internet or SaaS. But we have, as I said, a very large data set of comparables. So, so we sort of uh, have a, a gut feel now about what tends to happen and what, how do you de-risk from a funding point of view. So heuristic of funding the company for 24 months, which used to be in buoyant time, let's say it's probably more towards 18 months. What tends to happen in deep tech companies is that because most of the time you have an academic founder, there is an element of lacking knowledge or expertise around product management and product marketing. And so one of the most common uh, failure mode is to go from product development to sales in one big jump. And what tends to happen often is that sales are delayed because there isn't a clear product definition and a clear matching between product definition and customer benefit. And that is a process that it's quite hard and quite unique in deep tech and quite specialized. So what we tend to help our entrepreneurs is say, listen, don't invest so much capital building and expanding 
expensive sales organization to take your product to market when the product is not ready and the market is not ready to understand your product. So instead of doing that, take your time, spend less in focusing on a few customers where you can absolutely be sure about product market fit, where basically you ship your customers and you almost onboard customer remotely. Then you know you have perfect product market fit and then you can accelerate your sales. So it's about shifting the balance of resources from one area to the other which inherently usually lower the fund size or the fund burn for the company burn for a while until it's ready to scale the sales organization. So that's where we spend a lot of our time on after our first round or before we go in with our growth funds. I absolutely agree on what you're saying there. And I think that we're really missing the uh, Jason Lemkin who's behind B2B Saster for deep tech companies because all that other stuff that's described a million times. Now we need someone who goes out and develops the same wealth of knowledge, but for deep tech founders. Another topic when we're talking about the bubbles or the bubble times that we're probably likely to be seeing an end to quite soon is, of course, you've been through at least two. What are you seeing now? And I think before we just started the recording here, we talked about the full ratchet starting to show the rockly faces again. You called that a transitional phase. I'd love to get your mind going on this for us. As David was saying, we're in the middle of the arch and uh, we are coming out from a phenomenal year in 2021. And uh, we went into 2022 a little bit shocked with the tech markets off by 20%. And now we face a much more worrying situation with the war in Ukraine. So, you know, my comments very much are, a, let's say, a function of the moment, let's say. So take it for what it is. I'm not sure whether one can already call it a bubble and, we, you know, the bubble is imploding or not. I think there is a lot of volatility. What we have seen in the, in the previous two times, actually three times, because a lot of people don't remember that after the internet bubble, there was a much worse one, which was the telecom bubble imploding. And then you had the financial one. So actually, we have a lot of experience in seeing how the markets in the technology react to these uh, cycles. So where are we at the moment? At the moment, we are, I would say, at the take a breather, don't do anything, see what happens stage. So a little bit like in the property market, when this uh, quick and highly volatile movement happen, transactions slow down. And that's what I've noticed, particularly at the growth stage. And I'll come back to the early stage, which hasn't been as impacted at all, I must say. At the growth stage, transactions have slowed down all through January and February. At the beginning of March, end of February, beginning of March, we started to see some repricing based against public market movements. And as I was saying to you before the recording, for the first time ever, I've started to see the terrible reemergence of the full ratchet anti-dilution in a couple of term sheets, which I hadn't seen, seen well, for more than 10 years now. As a firm, we tend to be very much against those uh, very harsh terms because we believe that not only they're not very entrepreneur friendly, but you end up shooting yourself in the foot as an investor because the net guys is going to come in, he's going to ask for full anti-dilution, even though the market have recovered. So it's a type of thing that can only get worse. But at least those harsh terms are usually an interim measure until transactions get fully repriced. Now, Transaction get fully replies where the company that is raising as well starts to internalize new pricing and new valuations. And we are not fully there yet. And I don't think we will be fully there at least for another couple of quarters. And I'm hoping that the market recover before then. But if they don't, 
I expect a slow Q2, Q3 in terms of transactions compared to last year. And then again, an acceleration on a new pricing basis, on a new re-rating basis in the second half of the year. That is at the growth or early growth stage. At the early stage, so what our early stage fund does, those dynamics have not really appeared. Yes, maybe transaction has slowed down a bit, but we still the deal flow hasn't changed. Pricing has always been pretty much constant over the past few months in terms of valuation ranges. I don't think that market will be impacted as much fundamentally. Very exciting. So we are unfortunately very close to the time or the clock here. So we'll have to go to the quick fire round. The quick fire round is us asking snappy questions and you giving us equally snappy answers. Are you ready for this? I'll try my best. So the first question, we've had to adapt because we have already talked about what we wanted to. So our question here is, you say you're investing before the wave and I'm just curious to hear what are the waves that you're putting on your wetsuit to ride on now? Quantum computing is a big wave that we have started riding four years ago, and I expect many more deals to be done in this sector. Next generation AI, as I mentioned before, we're just about to do the first one. I think there's going to be a new generation of them. And this democratizing genetic data theme is a theme that I think is just about to start. And I have to throw in a kicker here and ask you, what about defense tech? Because I see a lot of that propping up now. People saying, ah, I want to invest in stuff that can save Europe. <laughs> what are your views? Is that just people being hyped? <laughs> yeah, we're seeing two trends, uh, defense tech and sovereign tech. Sovereign tech inherently has a little bit of a problem because by definition, it's not global on day one. Yeah. So it is something that we take very carefully. Defense tech, we do cybersecurity, the sells into defense, and we continue to do that. But purely defense tech, i.e. selling to governments and defense customer, it's a bit of a specialist market, which is usually ruled by big primes, big channels, and it makes hard to scale companies at the speed and growth rate necessary to deliver returns that are in line with our cost of capital. So we do see companies every once in a while, but there is a much, much smaller number. Very exciting. I had to ask. <laughs> now, what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned since you were part of the very first years in Amadeus? Goodness, uh, not sure what I can make it snappy. I came into the industry with very little knowledge of it. So pretty much everything for me was counterintuitive. But probably the most counterintuitive thing that I keep on coming back to is what I call the three P's, power law, post-rationalization and persistence. So every industry that is basically network driven, like VC, displays power dynamics. But I think that what I've observed the best VC is doing is post-rationalizing early successful exits, which were mostly random or product of chance, into a very credible post hoc narrative and equity story that was very believable. And it was believable both in attracting the next generation of deals and entrepreneurs and high quality of LPs. And then enabled to build a franchise along that power uh, law curve that provided persistence. And that gives you access to more capital, better entrepreneur, and it becomes self-fulfilling. And to me, it is a rather counterintuitive way of building success. 
I love the fact that we just had post-rationalization as a uh, hack to develop your fund and increase AUM. I love that. <laughs> I'll never forget this. <laughs> Thanks, Andre. Final question. What can we expect in the future from you and from Amadeus? I really hope that both for me and Amadeus, you can expect uh, more of the same. Once again, backing this uh, fundamental technology company that are represent the next generation or wave of it, technology innovation. You probably continues to see us doing that way ahead of the curve, way ahead of uh, the industry investing in this company. I think my most recent investment in a company called Nuclera is a good example of that. Investments in company like Paragraph or Exampla by our early stage team or Ori Biotech are all companies that represent those type of things. And we continue to be exciting to look for those companies that have answers to those questions that I mentioned before. So I hope that you continue to see us and myself continue to back those companies. Andrea, thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure and best of luck with everything to you and Amadeus. My pleasure. Thank you both. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.